Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Kazoo and Keep Your Eyes Open are pleased to present Stay Out of the Mall 13, a festive music festival that benefits the Canadian Cancer Society towards leukemia research. Night one takes place Thursday, December 11th at Silence and features performances by Jennifer Castle, John Southworth, and Shopkeeper. Night two takes place Friday, December 12th at the E-Bar with Mets, Weaves, and Badminton Racket. Silence is an accessible venue at 46 Essex Street. The E-Bar is located at 41 Quebec Street, but has stairs and is regrettably not a physically accessible space. Tickets to both all-ages licensed shows are available at ticketbreak.com or bring a non-perishable food item to the bookshelf at 41 Quebec Street or to the door and save $2 off admission. Learn more about Stay Out of the Mall 13 at their Facebook event page. See you all there. Coming up at the Starlight in Waterloo, Ontario, Emmanuel Jahl and Tanika Charles appear together on December 4th, and Tokyo Police Club Said the Whale and the Pack AD perform on December 9th and 10th. Unfortunately, the December 5th show featuring Jizza of Wu-Tang Clan has been cancelled, and refunds are available at point of purchase. The Starlight is located at 47 King Street in Waterloo. For complete listings and information, visit starlightsocialclub.ca. Creative Control with Beach First of all, a baby update. I know some of you are waiting with bated breath for news about uh, my wife and I. We're having a baby. The baby is due December 5th. It has yet to make it known that it would like out. We have, we're just waiting. And that's all I can say. It really could be any time now, but as I speak to you now, nothing. And that's fine on some level. It's just it's creating a little suspense, a little bit of tension. We're just waiting, but not, not anything. Now, my friends Josh and Shiri, their child was due December 6th, so ours was the 5th, theirs was the 6th, their child has uh, emerged, and they had a beautiful baby boy, and now I get very competitive about childbirth, 
and I'm already starting to fear that whatever my child ends up being, it's going to be a some, going to be someone who lags behind a little. I'm already slightly disappointed in my unborn child, but I'm also trying to be patient. I'm sure they're going to be great. I can't wait. And yeah, I tell you this because as as it stands, no disruption in the show. I know you have a relationship with the show, so as as of now, no disruption with the show. There will be a disruption with the show. I just don't know to what extent yet. That's part of the suspense and the tension. I don't know what life's going to be like. It will be different. I've done this once before. So this will be the second child, but still. In any case, I'm just telling you how I feel. So, that brings us to this episode, which I am very proud of, and I feel like I almost uh, I've made a new friend. You know, sometimes you have a nice conversation with someone and you feel like you've connected, and that was the case when I spoke recently with a very gifted comedian from New York. His name is Hari Kondobolu, and his new album is Waiting for 2042. And very funny guy, and very thoughtful guy. And I I could tell, for some reason, he became very invested in my career and well-being very quickly, and you'll hear more about that. I, I have to respect that. He's concerned. I'm concerned for him. I want him to do well. He's doing well. And if you hear his record, which is my favorite stand-up record of the year, you'll know why. And you're going to hear a bit from Waiting for 2042 uh, before the end of this episode, so stick around for that after the interview, and that's all I'll say for now. Here it is myself and, and Hari. Enjoy the show. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Whiplash, Rosewater, Elsa and Fred, Transcend, and more. And on December 4th, there's a really great double bill at the E-Bar featuring two excellent Toronto bands, Culture Reject and October Man. The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. More information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. Kondabolu is a very funny and incisive stand-up comedian who hails from Seattle, Washington. He's written for shows like Totally Biased with W. Camus Bell and appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman, Conan, John Oliver's New York stand-up show, among others. Earlier this year, Kill Rockstar has released his highly acclaimed and hilarious stand-up album, 
Waiting for 2042, which is out on vinyl December 2nd. On Friday, December 5th, he headlines a show at the Biltmore Cabaret in Vancouver. And here to discuss some of these things is Hari Kondabolu. Uh, hi, Hari. How are you? Hi, Vish. Uh, it's nice to be here. I should first correct you that I'm actually from uh, Queens, New York, not Seattle. I just don't want to lose my cred, you know? <laughs> are you living in Seattle? No, I started my comedy career in Seattle, and it's where I regularly go uh, oh. to stand up. It's like it's my favorite city, but I like grew up in Queens. I live in Brooklyn. I'm a New Yorker, but certainly Seattle has a very special place uh, in my heart. Okay, it must be a, a bio thing that I misread somewhere. I don't know. Do you have any connection to Seattle at all? I don't. I don't know. Okay, I... I'm there all the time. Like it's it, all my best friends are there, so I they I get treated like I'm a local comedian, and uh, I'm still seen as from there, even though I only lived there for two years. But like I'm, and I talk about Seattle all the time. Oh, so. Okay. It's certainly possible. All right, I, I apologize. So let's just let's just say hello to the people of Queens, New York. Hello, everyone. I'm I'm still one of you. <laughs> even though I, I leave, even though I, I sold out locally and moved to Brooklyn. Uh, oh, okay. You're, so that's even in itself. There's some tension there. Oh yeah, no. There's all sorts of reasons why the people of Queens can turn on me, but I'm I'm one of them, and okay. I'm si- and I'm currently in my parents' home in Queens while I do this interview. All so. right, nice, nice. Now. I, I want to begin by asking about a bit on your new album. It's called Moving to Canada, uh, where you suggest that Americans who think that our country, where I'm calling you from, is just so great, and that maybe they don't they don't really know what they're talking about. When did you discover that Canada was such a terrible place? Uh, I mean, one great thing about having uh, doing the stuff I do and having the fans that I have is that people will hold me accountable. So, you know, like you know, I think at, there was some bit I was doing about Canada. And, uh, you know, people are like, you know, you know, it's not really that wonderful. And they were telling me about like the stolen uh, generation in Canada, people who were like just like Australia, people who were put into residential schools and things like that. Um, the similar kinds of things to what Aborigin- Aboriginals in uh, Australia dealt with. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, I must include this in the bit now, you know. <laughs> uh, and also for years uh, you know, people, I heard liberals in America say, you know, if the elections didn't go their way, they were moving to Canada. And it seemed like such a spineless thing to begin to say to begin with, like, who has the privilege to go to Canada? If you believe in something, don't you stay and fight for that belief? I think it's different if it's regarding war, you know, during Vietnam, that's a different situation. But if it's because Bush wins the election, it's like, really? That's all it, t- it took? Like, this is your chance to to actually like use democracy and fight back and protest, and instead it's like, oh, well, I I'm gonna go there, you know. So it, it was, th- so that's where it kind of had roots. And then hearing more about Canada's like legacy, it's like, you know, I think most Americans just assume that, oh, you know, like you know this. I don't know if it's most Americans, but like America, the United States uh, was this land was stolen through a genocide of indigenous people. And Canada was just barren. You know, <laughs> there was no one there. And, you know, people just people just took over land that no one was on. And we don't hear about what happened in those lands as much. And and obviously it was awful as well. You know, like it, there was a genocide up there, too. And people were forced off their lands. And when I hear about how, like, Australia's residential schools, you know, were, were based on the Canadian model, it's like, whoa, that is that is demonry. That is some utmost demonry. Yeah, we, uh-huh. we, we're very flawed up here, and I think a, a lot of us are beginning to realize that more and more as we delve into our history. But I think the subtext of what some of your American friends are saying when they say, I'm going to move to Canada if so-and-so is elected is, 
it's not necessarily anti-patriotic or nationalistic or you know besmirching the history of whatever i actually think it's it's might be i don't want to be surrounded by people who might have voted for something that i don't agree with right which is cowardly right which means that instead of you instead of fighting i want to leave because my comfort comes first when like a lot of the people who are most affected are you know working class people people of color they don't they can't just leave you know when you're dealing with people who don't have the access to leave right you know it that's not how this works and so uh I, that's what always agitated me it's like you're upset cuz you don't want to be surrounded by people who don't have your values meanwhile um you know you're pe- there are people who's who because uh the nation's values uh politically are changing get impacted immediately mm-hmm. and that we're not fighting for that i mean so that that always that always agitated me. It just feels like if you believe something, you fight for it. You don't leave. So you're not necessarily mad at us. You're mad at... <laughs> is that what this is really about? I just want to get to the heart of this. Yeah, I'm just concerned. <laughs> it's about making sure... But you're not... That's such a Canadian thing to say, Vish. <laughs> but you're not, you're not upset, though. Are you American? You're not angry with this. Are you friend? It, it, I make this analogy on the on the album. It feels like... Uh, the Amer- the only reason Canada looks so good is that the U.S. is like the kid who beats you up in high school and like shoves you against your locker and beats you up, and then Canada shows up and is like, "Hey, you know, I'm sorry about him, but you still hang out with the bully." <laughs> like it's not it's not good either. Yeah, don't worry about what the bully thinks. Yeah, you're you're oh. you're absolutely right. I mean, we're completely now you're agreeing with me. I, I know that's what it, that's what we do here. We we listen to Americans talk for a while, and then when they're finished, we say, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> it's even you know what? Even when Harper got elected, what I kept hearing was he's like our own Bush. Like, why are you comp? You can, he could just be evil. He can be a demon in his own right. We don't need to compare him to our own demon, you know? Yeah, absolutely. He is not... Uh, I think he might be a, a bit slicker than your George W. Bush. Well, there you go. There, That's what I like to hear. That's some confidence. <laughs> well, they, they, he doesn't seem to be as much of a buffoon. Right, right. <laughs> he seems to be... He seems to know what he's doing. He's very smart about it. Now, have you been following... Here in... Canada today, as you and I are speaking, we are all following uh, the saga, the the dreadful saga of Gian Gomeshi. Have you been following the downfall of Gian Gomeshi at all? Yes, yes, I have been. Yeah, I uh, I have been, and it's been awful. And uh, not, I mean, the downfall is not the awful part. It's the truth that has come out that's awful. Yeah, it's it's getting uh, really terrible now. As we're speaking, he he appeared in court today. Uh, he was arrested. He turned himself into the police, and he, he uh, appeared yeah. in court and. It's been an ugly thing. Now, were you not on that show? I was on Q. Uh, it was um, over the phone. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I get. I mean, this is a ridiculous thing to say, but yeah, you know, I didn't get any hint of anything. But you wouldn't. <laughs> it's not like you would like. Excuse me, sir. Are you a demon? Like you're not going to. Uh, you're not going to know that uh, through a phone call. But it was. It made it more. It made the whole thing more surreal. Certainly, because it's like, wow. I, I you know. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I worked at the CBC for, for five years. Did and, you know him? Yeah, I did know him, and I worked on Q for a week. I did some backfill, like, you know, filling in, producing stuff uh, back in March. And so, I mean, I did, I know, I knew him, yeah, and I know him, I suppose. Uh, he's not gone. And it's uh, it's strange. We all had a sense that things were odd, but we didn't have a sense that they were so 
weird. Like we. What do you mean odd? Explain that. Creepy. A uh, little weird with women. Uh, we heard this. They're always. I mean, I didn't experience it because I'm not a woman. Right. Um, my own interactions were just like, you know, he seemed kind of cocky and he didn't seem to know my name. I got a lot of. I never got hey Vish. I got a lot of like hey buddy, which is a sure sign. Buddy. Yeah, buddy's the worst. Yeah, people don't call other people buddy. Like, do you know anybody who calls people buddy and means it? It's like when people say bro. Yeah. It's another yeah. version of bro. Yeah, exactly. So I got, I you know, weirdness, and you'd hear all sorts of stories about him kind of being cruel or uh, to his staff or abusive with his power, you know, de- demanding stuff. Um, but the, no, nothing like what we're seeing uh, now. And um, I was just curious. I didn't realize you were on the phone with him. I didn't know what your interactions were like with him. They are obviously very brief. They're very brief. I mean, the one thing, because I listened to the Q interview again um, afterwards, just just to... I don't know why. Maybe just to see if I missed something. The only thing I did notice is that a couple of times he said a few things under his breath on the radio. Oh. And I thought that was kind of strange. Like That's what? Strange... Like what was he saying? I don't remember. I, I think I I said something. I I don't think I realized that Q was um, in, in the States. I just thought it was a CBC thing. Right. And so I, I, I just assumed, like I was saying something, and I think it was like, I don't even remember what it was exactly, but it was something where I was talking about Canadian listeners and not knowing it was, but I, so I think I might have insulted him. I didn't mean to. And I think he said something under his breath, and he said something under his breath again later. Um, just to, like that seemed annoyed. Yeah. Which, which seemed weird as a radio person. Like you don't, because people can hear you. <laughs> yes. I can hear yes. you. Yes. Yes. So I remember that being a little like oddly aggressive and strange, and and me just being ignorant. I didn't mean to, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm just being an American jerk, as you know, like just that's what I was being. So, um, that's, but that, that's that's not gonna. I mean, ego doesn't necessarily translate to you know someone who is. Accused of this many sexual assaults, my God! I like, know but this is what this has become. Disgusting. This is when, when, when some of us say like we had an inkling. Like when a friend of mine texted me the news that he had been fired, I immediately resp- he was like, "I have no idea what's going on." I said, "Well, it's probably about a woman." So that's telling, uh, and and you you feel a little complicit. Like no one knew to this extent, but when you talk about ego. That was there. That was always there, and and right. and that maybe we kind of assume that that is expected of people in this per, in that profession of his stature in this country. Um, I mean, I don't know. Have you encountered that? You've you've worked on TV shows. You've been on TV shows. You know that there's a power dynamic there that we have to be conscious of. Uh, have you yeah. have you have you encountered this kind of behavior before from people who are kind of flexing their ego and their muscles? Well, yes, and I think well, as, uh, comedians certainly. I think part of it is, um, I think there's something that draws people to comedy to begin with, just whether it's like uh, some mental instability or uh, the need for attention or whatever that that lacking is. Like comedy tries to fill that, and it might not. Most times, it doesn't really. There's usually deeper stuff, and so you take that egomania and some degree of success and power and oh my God, people turn into flaming assholes. Like yeah. it's not even like, it's not even subtle. So, you know, so yeah, certainly I've seen that amongst like people. Uh, that's that's part of it. I think I've had uh, degrees of that. Even today, my mother's like, you used to be such a nice person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Your own mother. So, oh my, my own God. Mother, like, you used to be so kind. I remember when you used to listen to other people and respond to what they were saying. 
and not segue it back into one of your stories or talking about how many shows you sold out in San Francisco. Uh, so, I mean, it, yeah, it's like, look at this conversation. How do we get it to me somehow? Do you see what I mean, Vish? Yeah, yeah I, I see where you went there. It's very true. easily, very easily. And now I'm gloating about the fact that I almost had some kind of weird internal, hey, look at how I made it come back to me. Look at how I deconstructed the thing. I'm this brilliant. Even while I'm doing it, I'm doing it. The weird thing here for me is that I'm I am a very uh, I'm not a very well known I'm like I'm a modestly known person. I was on CBC Radio and people some people know me. So when the brown man went down, yeah, I did receive in like people saying, "Hey, what about you? What about Vish? What do you mean? Take over the position? No, 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 not to like. Why hasn't oh. this guy been brought down? No, 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 no. <laughs> My brain immediately is like, maybe we should check him out. No, no, Let's no, see no. What, what what he's been up to? That's not what I meant. I meant like, <laughs> hey, there's an empty host chair. What about Vish? And like, I was like, I'm flattered, but on another level, I'm like, are you just saying this because I'm another brown guy? I, you know? I, well, I mean, who else? Let's say there was a line for that, based on seniority or experience or popularity. Does that statement make sense? I I was I left the company. I, you know, I was I had mostly a writing position there uh, the last time I worked there, but I have been back a couple of times. I have an on-air column there. It's not completely ridiculous to suggest that someone like me might be into it. I've been doing this show. People who follow this show that you're on thought it would be a good thing, right? I mean, I interview people all the time, every day almost. I'm interviewing someone. So they just and this, thought and this show the show airs everywhere, not just well, it's a podcast. I mean, it's just a show. It, it airs in Guelph, Ontario, where right, on right, a radio right. station, but it's a podcast, and people listen to it all over the place. But on some level, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility, but on another, I don't know that I rank there, you know, at the, at right. the CBC is a big corporation. I work there. It's not crazy, but I just thought it was interesting that it went right from I don't know, maybe again, the context is I do do this. I don't know if I do it particularly well. And I don't know if that they regard me that well. I just thought it was interesting that they were like, hey, brown guy. Maybe they replace a brown guy with a brown guy. Well, whenever Aziz or Russell Peters does anything, my name seems to come up in this bizarre way on the internet. Yeah, it's, um, it's weird. It's very uncomfortable. Like, how come Hurry didn't get that? I'm like, I'm not up for that. <laughs> Aziz and Russell Peters are significantly more famous than I am. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and the majority of the time when it happens with Russell, it's always brown people that do it. Like, yeah. it's, it's like, I stop. Like, there are more than two comedians. What are you doing? Like, there's a broad range of people. There's... But yeah, I can understand. It's frustrating. That is a little odd. I'm not saying that you're not talented and you couldn't have done Q, but it is weird, especially guess, if I'd, you're not even expecting it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I'd like to, sure, I'd like to take a shot at that. That would be fun. Like, whenever anyone asked me in the building what I wanted to really be doing there, I'd say, well, a show like Q. That's kind of where I'd see myself. Uh, I seem to, that seems to be where I, I, what I'm gravitating towards. And this happens. And I don't know who really wants to take over from this. Like, after all of this, you know, like it's... Who's, ta well, who's doing it now? Well, they've got a series of people filling in. Well, couldn't you be one of those people? Well, I'm sure. I mean, that's what people are asking about on Twitter, but I don't know. I feel a little sheepish about sending that email, you know, being like, hey, you know, I'm here. I, I'm, maybe this is my Canadian that's shining through, but I'm just being a little modest about it. Plus, well, could, 
but couldn't someone couldn't the internet campaign for you? Yes, it's conceivable they could. I'm not suggesting we start something now. It, it has happened. But, but, but I mean, it, but this could this particular podcast and my urging could lead to a, <laughs> a hashtag Vish on Q. Vish on Q. Yeah, that would be cool. That would yeah, be and, cool. And, and and I don't want people to think we had this conversation previously. Like we have just met. I'm saying this from the heart. Yeah, you don't know who I am. I could be terrible no. too, but I'm not. I'm oh not, I'm, God! Oh, please don't be, because no, especially no. after I endorsed you, this would be awful. <laughs> no, I'm a family man. My wife and I are expecting our second child any time now. I'm I'm a good person. Yeah, this is this is great. Yeah, definitely, the, he, I think Vish, a hashtag Vishan Q uh, campaign <laughs> is very possible. But again, please don't. I feel I'm already embarrassed about my previous experience on Q. I had no idea what was going on. This was before <laughs> any of this had come up to the surface. I promise not to shame you with any of your appearances uh, with me uh, in any public forum. I think you'll be I, fine. Now, okay, great. <laughs> I'd appreciate I, that. I appreciate the segue into. I don't know why I brought up the Gian stuff just because you were on the show, but I want to circle back to you because on. We were talking about race and how things are weird. On 2042, the record, you talk about being accused of being obsessed with race or obsessing with race in your material, and that you and then you sort of counter that by saying it's actually the media that is perpetuating discussions about race. I'm, I'm curious, who accuses you of being obsessed with race? Anytime I make a, like a tweet, I'll get something. If a series of tweets about race, my, my, every time I'm on television and there's a bit about race, it's it's just it's like everyone says I'm a comic is a racial comic or a political comic and I'm an observational comic and my observations are very racialized because I live in a racialized society and I see that immediately. Mm-hmm. I have a double lens and, and like a lot of people of color I think would say the same like they you see the the world through the eyes everyone seeing you with and through your own. You can't help it. The media is not built for you. It's built for a white mainstream. And so, yeah, like I, I'm going to see that and I'm going to reflect on that. And that's what gravitates me, gravitates to me. But that, you know, I, that's that's who I am. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it's just very strange to me that, you know, I get a, 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 said I'm obsessed with it when I watch the, you know how they say that it, silence says a lot. You know, like what's missing says a lot. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that for years, so many types of people and still today do not exist on television and in film and aren't represented in the news properly, that says a lot. The lack of representation says a lot. And so that's to me an example of like, you're saying I'm obsessed with race, but it's clear to me that we're obsessed with upholding a particular image and ignoring others. Yeah, I mean, I get accused of this, too. Um, it's primarily by white people. I've sort of, I think there is a, a conception that, that making a race joke from our perspective is an easy <sighs> and uncomfortable thing to do. And, and I think that certain people resent our license to do that <laughs> or our ability to do that. But I, 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 I try to remind them of the trade-off. You know, the reason why <laughs> we're, we, this is what we have to work with right now. You've had a lot. And I, yes. don't th- I don't think people recognize that. Oh, it's just like the mo- it's just so annoying. <laughs> it's, it, especially because it's like always oh, white people who say that to me. It's like when me and my friends of color are around or cool white people who are like down with the cause and know what's going on. Like it's just that we talk about this stuff and it's so much fun. Yeah. It's enjoyable to let off steam talking about how messed up this all is. So it's just like just because you're not invited to – this is the one party you're not invited to 
the anti-racist, I'm sick of this shit party, and you didn't get an invite, and nor did you really want to go, you have to ruin everyone else's good time. But do you, like Aziz Ansari, I once heard him interviewed, it was probably on, I think it was on Marin, on, on WTF, and he was talking about how he himself doesn't really talk about race. He himself d- will avoid accents and, you know, things like Russell Peters might do. Do you do you think there's a line between doing, addressing this kind of stuff, this kind of material in a smart way or dumbing it down? Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Aziz or Russell Peters, but... Right. When he said that, I was immediately drawn to Russell Peters as someone who's made hay, sort of making, you know, doing voices and, and doing things I would have done in grade seven, you know? Well, I, I, will, I will provide context for all of it. First of all, like Aziz doesn't take, you know, doesn't want to do easy angles on race. I, I neither do I. So, of course, I respect that greatly. And he does talk about race and he does it in subtle, impressive ways. Like he's done things on talk shows in particular. There's one thing where he talks about like, did you watch Slumdog? He had this whole bit about like people asking if you saw Slumdog Millionaire when it came out. And, you know, the mm-hmm. idea of like, uh, you know, they have there's this one movie and he talks about all the movies white people have, which is <laughs> all of them. And so that's, you know, that's he does that like this or when he was doing that roast with James Franco, they're making all these stupid Indian jokes that we've all heard our whole life. He, like, went on there and talked about, like, you know, how, like, all this stuff was from the 80s and how corny it was. You know what I mean? Like, so he does do it and he does it in an intelligent way. And, you know, his style also, like, his existence to me is racial and political. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. The fact he exists and succeeds is incredible to me. And certainly when I remember tweeting, like, I had an, uh, a bit that I did on Totally Biased, the now defunct television show Totally Biased, where I talked about how great Mindy Kaling, how great it is that Mindy Kaling has a show. And I go over the history of South Asian representation, particularly Indian representation in mainstream media in America uh, throughout like, you know, maybe 40 years. And it was funny. It was a funny bit and I'm proud of it. And Aziz like said, you know, tweeted it out and told people to, to watch it. You know, mm-hmm. that says a lot when the dude puts that out and supports that. You know what I mean? So there, you know, so it's not that he's against it. I think it's about what you're saying and, and, and how you're saying it, whether it's easy or not. Now, with Russell, I think it's important to see the context that Russell comes in. Because he can certainly be, I think, accused of, like, isn't that easy? He's just doing accents and all that. Most of the crowds, I don't know what it's like in Canada, and I know that he's a, he's a mainstream star there. Yeah. But, like, in, rest, in the U.S., most people don't know who Russell Peters is. The people who know who Russell Peters is are brown people, Asian people, and friends of brown people and Asian people. <laughs> like, and so when he's performing here, it's mostly brown audiences. And so he's uh, talking to the community. The community also happens to be big, and the community happens to be all over the world. I'm not saying he just performs for them, and I'm not saying he's not a bigger star than just a community comic. But I'm saying that that is a big part of the audience, and when he's making those jokes, I see, when you see shots of the audience, you see that. And I think there's a great deal of value in that he empowered a lot of brown kids to go into stand-up. He, he do, does shows where you see the whole family at the gigs. Right, right. He brings everyone out in a way that no other comedian I've ever seen do that. When you're talking about the diaspora, you're talking about like parents watching like Bollywood or other regional South Asian cinema and not being able to relate, and kids who are growing up American or Canadian or British or whatever else and trying to find a different thing and having a mainstream that doesn't reflect them he cuts across both Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so he might not be overtly political but his existence in that way is that's now if you're talking now 
if we're talking about like a generation now, it's 2014, you're a young South Asian comic that starts today and you're doing accents. I, I'm not going to name names, but I'm like, really? Today? Is that really your experience? And do you not see the, everything else that's happening? And that seems a little different. When Russell does it, I think it means something else. Yeah, I mean, my, yeah. I mean, uh, do you mean because the accents are shrinking, like are going away? Or, or do you feel like... You mean uh, if someone now does it? Yeah. I, ju- I just feel like that, er- from a, com- a comedian's perspective, I feel like that era has passed. I think it's, it's, it's become easy and it's been done, first of all. Secondly, like the question has to come up, is the material strong enough? Yeah. Is the material what's getting the laugh or the accent? And how good is the accent? Because I've heard people's accents of their parents and I meet their parents. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Your dad doesn't sound like this. I, I did an accent when I started when I was 17, 18, 19, you know, because I knew it would work. And my dad didn't sound like that. My dad, would, my brother would make fun of the fact that my accent was awful. I was doing an impression of Hank Azari's impression of Apu. You know it's what I mean? Not, yeah, it's, that's right. It, yeah. Like our accents aren't even our accents. The, like, that when we, we use them to make it's like like our accents have been whitewashed. If that makes any sense. Totally. No, they totally. Are like, that's awful. <laughs> like, when we make fun of our parents, we're making fun of them with the white man's voice. We're not even using, we've lost, we're tone deaf to our parents' voices. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, I, I, my parents just say such silly things now that I, I can, it, it came to a point where they were saying such odd things that I would just tell the story as, they, as myself. Like, I wouldn't even yes. break into the voice because I didn't need it. I've been doing that on stage where I do this whole thing about my father, which for years I was afraid to do it because I'm like, oh, it's an Indian guy talking about his father. It's just another minority, like immigrant kid's parent talking about, you know, yeah. about their father or about their, about their parents. And then I started thinking, I have every right to talk about my parents because I'm a human being and that is part of my experience. And I'm not going to be shamed into not talking about my parents. You know, that's just, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah. However... Like, I don't do an accent. And in the bit, I say, like, some of you might have noticed I didn't use an accent there when talking about my father. And you might be wondering, hey, Harry, why didn't you do an accent when talking about your father? The answer to that question is, fuck you. That's why. Yeah. If you're wondering why I didn't use an accent, it's fuck you. And, I mean, it's important to me because it's like, and I say this in the joke, too, like, my father does lots of ridiculous things. And I think he should be judged based solely on the ridiculous things he does. <laughs> that is what you mocked. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I want to switch gears and ask you about your perspective on on Ferguson, this Darren Wilson verdict, and, and oh. Michael Brown's death. I, I can't help but feel that we're doomed to keep repeating history and never really overcome our differences. There seems to be... I, I, I'm not seeing the the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Uh, what What is your take on what's happening? It's. I mean, I've been using this phrase a lot, and I've used it already three times in, uh, in this podcast, but demonry, man... Hmm. This is straight up demonry. I've been using the phrase white demonry, so I think white demonry is specific for this, uh, which, by the way, doesn't mean all white people are demons. I'm talking about a particular kind of like – If I, I, I'm assuming I don't need to explain this. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming your listeners understand the difference. Yes, I think they do. And, and I'm sure that there are white people who are like, yes, I understand, even though I've never heard the term white demonry. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> this. I mean this. Uh what do you mean? You mean me, but I married a brown dude. I'm like, no, not maybe you because you're saying that. But yeah, but like this is just such white demonry. Like that interview that Darren Wilson does with George Stephanopoulos when he talks about a bullet going through the head of 
of Michael Brown. And he says it with no remorse. He was doing his job. It's like, you killed a kid. Yeah. Oh, my God. You referred to him. That demon referred to Mike Brown as a demon. Yeah. That's such a demon thing to do, to refer to a child that you murdered as a demon. Yeah. Like, it's it's so disgusting. And just putting tweets on, you know, tweeting things and putting Facebook posts, because now people can find things, even without hashtags, people are finding what I'm writing. The things people are writing, the images people are sharing of Mike Brown's dead body, and not to show how brutal it was, but just to be awful, it, there's so, it's so disgusting. Yeah. And whenever people say, why, why are you obsessed with race? I want people to think about the last week. I want people to read the comments I've been getting and that pe- from all over, like when you read articles about Ferguson, the things people are writing, I want people to go to hashtag Ferguson, write, see what people are writing around the country. And, some of the, and most of these people don't have their actual faces attached. They keep the egg that came with Twitter. Yeah, that's right. That's the, that's the coward's egg. And they, <laughs> and they keep that coward's egg on and uh, write the most repulsive things. I refuse to believe these are trolls alone. You think yeah. these are just these are actual these are people these aren't just spam these bots. These are humans. Even if they are trolls, it's despicable. But no, that's that's a coward's way of, of you know, or maybe that's people not wanting to confront the reality of how ugly this world is. You you make a, a really trolls aren't denying people's opportunities to get better jobs. Trolls aren't keeping income inequality this high. Trolls aren't shooting actual human beings. Yeah, right. Demons are, and a system and an institutional racist system it's a global system but i'll talk, speak specifically in in my country uh that is is demon run and demon fed and demon founded all right and we have to call it for what it is it's disgusting it's hard to see and the idea of people have been asking me what are you going to write about it i'm like i don't know man <laughs> this is this jokes are hard to come by when it's so ugly the only thing I have is the word demon, and I might repeat that to like, get a laugh out of people because I'm just so disgusted. You have a you tell a joke about Back to the Future, which is a movie that uh, in a series that I'm also obsessed with. But the, on the on the record, you joke about how. Mitch, let me first say how pleased I am that you listened to the record. Oh, <laughs> it means the world to me, and I say that because I've done so many interviews where people just quote other interviews. Oh, <laughs> they, I see. Haven't, they haven't actually listened to the thing that they're interviewing me about, especially after I did Fresh Air with Terry Gross, which was a lovely interview. And I really talked about my parents and their experience for the first time in a mainstream way. And Terry Gross asked me wonderful questions and she listened to the album and she'd seen even obscure YouTube clips. Right. Like she did so much research and she did such a great job. And everyone else is feeding off that great interview. Oh, I see. Just asking me questions based on that interview, or they're asking me about my immigrant parents, not that they give a shit, but because Terry Gross did it, and they liked how Terry got a certain response out of me. So they're trying to milk that genuine emotion, and it's fucking cheap. <laughs> and it's upsetting, and it, it cheapens what I said genuinely to a great interviewer. So, like, Jesse Thorne did a wonderful job, and I appreciate Jesse Thorne's work, and there's been a handful of other interviewers that I felt really did the work. Everybody else, it's just been so shitty and manipulative, and I appreciate the fact that you uh, are doing such a great great interview, and and you absolutely deserve to... uh, (laughs) 
replace that demon on Q. Vishon Q, everyone, is the hashtag <laughs> we're trying to keep going here. I appreciate you saying that, particularly after I mangled the uh, geographic aspect of the introduction. But uh, no, you got yourself out of that hole real quick. <laughs> thank you very much. Now, I was going to ask about Back to the Future in in the context of us repeating history, because the, the joke you make is about how, for whatever reason. Doc Brown insists that we can't change the past right. uh, to impact the future. We are we are at this we're, we're beyond a tipping point on on so many levels in terms of how Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How we can alter the course of uh, humanity. And I'm curious, when you look at things like Ferguson and, you know, countless other stories like do you have uh, any kind of prescription about what we should be doing or from your vantage point you know how we can be how we should be proceeding here oh yes i mean it's uh it's very clear uh, and it's funny everyone complicates it and it's a very straightforward answer we need to be funding a mission to mars (laughs) we need to beat we need to beat the demons to Mars. That's all this is. We should beat the demons before they get it and corporatize it. And, you know, the, I mean, the funniest thing, I suppose, is if the candy bar company gets there first. I mean, that's what they'd want, of course. <laughs> they already own the, the naming rights, really, to it. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. That's what we have to do. We have right? to, that sounds cowardly. That's like the equivalent of moving to Canada. <laughs> no, it's not the same thing. Because I'm talking about, honestly, I'm talking about it's 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 I'm talking about colonizing Mars. You're right. It's different than colonizing Canada, I suppose. Yes, I'm talking about colonizing Mars and take and I know I know it means like are you saying if there are Martians up there, people of color have to do what Europeans did to us? No, no. <laughs> it, it, we can we can create a shared space where we don't. Maybe the colonies don't look the same, but yes, and some I suppose part of me is saying yes, we need to we need to take over another planet. We might need to jettison what we've done here and, and, and take off. Okay. That's an interesting right here about to Mars, it frightens me because it's like, Oh, when they said the the meek or the poor shall inherit the earth, they were talking about us. <laughs> we're going to Mars. Oh no, it was a prophecy. <laughs> I don't I really don't know, Vish. I mean I, I I don't know what to say. It's hard, man. It's depressing. I feel like these conversations help. And I certainly know that there are more complicated conversations that are happening now than ever before because social media forces us to. And that there's some incredible reporting happening on social media around Ferguson and, you know, and with Egypt or everything else that's happened, you know, with Twitter's rise and 
Facebook's rise. So I feel like, you know, for all the, whether it's CIA seed money or not, we're not sure. At least I know that something positive is coming out of, out of this stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, I throw the CIA seed money in to make sure the, my, my, uh, my, my fans who are big, uh, Illuminati conspiracy theorists are still on board. Um, but, uh, it, no, it's certainly like, um, you know, I, I, I feel like this has to be the start. You know, re- reclaiming the media is a big part of that. Yeah, okay, that that's fair. Now, this is essentially or primarily, I don't like to say this, but it, the facts speak for themselves. Uh, we're over 150 episodes. I've done mostly music interviews. Yeah, and you on your record, you talk about Weezer. And, <laughs> I knew it was coming, and you hate and how you hate them. Now, I want to just say to you that I was in the Weezer fan club. I was member number one, two, three, four. Oh my god! So you were in it when my, uh, Michael and Carly were running it. Absolutely, they got me oh into shows god, for free. Were, were you in it? Were you were in it too? No, I signed up after they passed, unfortunately, okay. and so like it, it took a while for the membership. And like, Carl. Uh, yeah, that's the, right. He really does him a disservice. He's more than that. But like Carl was running it, and then I got the membership way late. By the time I got it, it was already like Green Album era, and I had checked out to some degree. Yeah. Um, well, but I still have my ID card somewhere. But yeah, oh, it's that's so cool. I want to see it. I wonder <laughs> what that looks like. I was such a fan, and oh my god, they were. It was so. And Carl, because Carl also, I loved his little drawings too. Like there were all these. Yeah. Just, wrong that he had I, I i actually appear on the very first i don't know if they still do this because i'm a long lapsed member um but i believe that i'm on the very first oh no i know this i'm on the they did a covers comp and so everyone in the fan club could submit a version of a weezer song and i actually, i actually that's did amazing. yeah i did michael and carly with my friends oh man that's awesome yeah i was like 16 or 17 but anyway this is again turning into stuff about me no, no, I love this because you're you're what I refer to as a Weezer geezer. <laughs> That's right, I am. We, we are of that wave. I'm 36. Uh, I got into them when I was what? I don't know, 16, 17. Right. I got into them when I was like 12. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I love them. And yeah. you talk a lot about how they've. <laughs> I think this is a common sentiment. Basically, Blue Album, Pinkerton, great. Everything else, not so great. Uh, is, are they the primary sort of letdown for you in terms of music? Is there anyone who's let you down as much as Weezer? I mean, the the new Pixies album is upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really did not want them to make a new album. I mean, they released that song Bamthwak with Kim still on it, which was just a lone single. And that was okay. And I'm like, whoa, this is the first Pixie song that I just thought was okay. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> And then once Kim Deal left and they still recorded an album, it was it's just like this is not this is not going to be good, uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it is he just doesn't have you know Frank Black or Black Francis or Charles or whatever it is at this point. Like he doesn't want he does he doesn't have the voice. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. his his voice he can't do he can't scream like that. He's that he's just not able to, and that was a big part of it. And Kim Deal's you know vocals to contrast his screaming with so much of that music. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, music that reflected that time period. And honestly, I'm more, I'm more sympathetic now than ever, to be fairly honest. Especially after releasing my own album, right? I realized, oh my god, at some point I have to release a second one. Sophomore slump. The one. sophomore slump is a, is a big scary thing. And they have, and, and each album is going to be compared with each other. And I might change. You know, I'm already changing. Like I'm writing jokes about my relationship and my parents, and yeah, yeah. people are going to think, oh, you already lost an edge. Well, that's part of my life. Right. I'm thinking about what my future might look like as a as an adult and how I 
define adulthood to me and that's going to change what I do. And so people who like stuff about Back to the Future and Weezer are like, what the hell is he talking about relationships for? Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's part of who I am. So, uh, you know, I don't know what Weezer's journey is. And maybe after Pinkerton, Rivers was so distraught about the poor reviews and how much he put his heart out there that, you know, maybe he didn't, he couldn't let it, you know, write something that was genuine and from the heart. I listened to the new album. People have been begging me to write a review about it. Well, I was going to ask because you recorded the bit before. I mean, this re- the, your record was out before everything will be all right in the end. The new Weezer album came out, right? Yeah. right? yeah. So what are your thoughts on the new Weezer album? I think everything will be all right in the end, but I don't think that has anything to do with Weezer. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think it's the best thing they've done since Pinkerton, but I don't think that's saying much. Hmm. And uh, I think I, there's... That, that's saying a lot, actually, because I think Pinkerton's great. No, 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 since Pinkerton. No, I know, but I'm saying that if it, it's the best thing since Pinkerton, the Green Album is No, no, it, no, 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 it's, it's, it's the... I, oh. I understand what you're saying. My point is the best thing since Pinkerton, that's pretty good. That's not, I hated the Green Album so much. You did, okay, all right. So that's the difference. The, the drop-off is high. Okay. The, honestly, I've listened to the Green Album again, and I'm not as upset as I was when I first came out. Yeah, it, but it it's still not as good as any of their B sides, right? Okay, and it's certainly not as good as any Rentals record, and it's certainly not as good as uh, Pat Wilson's special goodness project. Not the albums that he released proper. I think it might have been with dis. I don't know what he released. I was going to say Discord. It was not Discord, <laughs> but whatever he released it on. But that first self released record, the Bunny album, the self titled special goodness thing that I think was only available in Japan. Uh, properly was as close to the the next Weezer album as you'll ever get. Right. I don't think anything will be as close to a Weezer album, the third proper Weezer album as I see it, as that special goodness record, which is incredible. Huh. Um, really, after that, it, it just... And I'm not talking about the... The one that he recorded by himself, not the one with bandmates. The one he recorded by himself. Okay. So um, this is the... All right. That's interesting. I didn't know... I, I, I kind of felt... I was so disappointed with them at some point uh, that I just stopped paying attention to everything. You you are a true fan. You've been following... Oh, I obsessively knew that. I, you know, I've listened to the Space Twins records and stuff, too. But, I mean, I think... Uh, and Ozma and all the offshoots of, like, friends of the band, people who played in bands. And I, I heard bands that I... There's a band called Crack Out that came out in the UK that I was a fan of because they sounded vaguely like Weezer and I met the lead singer on a Napster board. Like, <laughs> like this is... Like, I was obsessed with that band. I think there's a couple of tracks on this new record that sound like great B-sides from Weezer's golden era. Yeah. And that's really exciting for me um, to hear that. And it's the first songs I've heard on repeat. The single that they released, uh, what's the single called? Uh, it's Back to the Shack. Back, it's so bad. It sounds like, it, it sounds like what it, what it would, it's like if you your father walked in with a leather jacket and, and it's like, hey, it still fits. Yeah, so yeah that's, <laughs> that's what that's like, that song. It's like saying it. It's like saying it instead of showing it. Yeah. It's saying it. Cause, and, there, and there's tracks on there that don't sound like old Weezer. It sounds like Maladroit Weezer or Green Album Weezer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, they're so like long. It's so past that. You know what I mean? And. And part of me is like, well, it's unfair to expect them to go back to that. And I know that sounds so stupid after for a decade making fun of the fact they don't sound the same way and wanting them to go back to that. What I want is my youth. 
No, no, no. I think see, you've already you've you've expressed empathy for anyone who puts something out in a medium that's frozen forever, and that everything subsequent to that is being yeah, judged by they that. Can't go back to that because I can't go back to that. However, they can't release anything that sounds like that, and the only thing they can is if they keep re- releasing rarities and B sides that didn't come out. And I, I I'm happy about. I mean, I heard some stuff stuff on the Pinkerton Deluxe thing I hadn't heard, and I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing, and it was from that era. I mean, you can't expect them. To be that person, you know, they're not in their mid to early 20s. They're not awkward exploring that. The dude's married and has a kid. You know, he went to Harvard. I mean, life has moved on. What we're measuring Weezer against is their artistic trajectory versus other artistic trajectories. That's That's why it's disappointing. That's why it hurts. Because we've seen other bands, other artists evolve, and it proves to be a magical thing. Every record, maybe not every record, but you you follow, you go on the journey and it's not a precipitous drop off. It's in fact there are you know peaks and valleys. How many examples of there are there? Radiohead, uh, Fugazi, Fugazi. Um, Fugazi is working outside of the of the system. I think helps to yeah. some degree. He, I mean, Ian Mackay doesn't give a shit. No, <laughs> it doesn't give a shit who thinks of what, and there's, he's not worried about what a label there's is. Lots of, there's lots of like great. I think Shellac. Like, so I don't want to just talk about my favorite bands here, but Hot Snakes. Like, yeah. there's, there's a bunch of the Beatles. I mean, there's just a bunch of bands that right. made a large body of work, and it was all pretty interesting. And well, with, I will also say, I mean, the, with the, the Beatles, how long is that time period? Also, it's like eight years. I mean, yeah. I mean, eight years of making records as opposed to. They were together like 15 or 16 years, but yeah, yeah, yeah. This band has been together 20 years or making records for 20 years, and I think that what part of it is, and I don't know why we're talking about Weezer so much. I guess you brought it up by putting it on your record. There's very few people I can can have this thoughtful of a discussion about the band Weezer. Like, not just, I like them. I remember buying the album at the wall in 1994. (laughs) This is like a real, like, discussion about artists and this particular band who honestly, like, whether it was their incredible music videos, when music videos really had Im- impact, yeah. you know, whether it, they also reflect the internet coming of age of the internet, the fact that uh, you know, and Windows, I was in Windows ninety five, that the the Buddy Holly video was with the disc that I, came with Windows, so people saw that video also as one of the early things you can see in your computer. I feel, um, I feel like every tragedy has some kind of bomb, and and I have pointed this out a couple of times on the show, but. Weezer kind of really rose out of after the death of Kurt Cobain. I keep I always mention the death of Kurt huh. Cobain, but I do think that they were uh, it got really gloomy there. Like the idea of rock music, you could see it in clubs. Clubs start. It got depressing to put on an indie rock show because it just had this connotation, and people were. That's why so many I think rock clubs became like dance electronic music clubs for a while, until the market demanded that they shift back in the two thousands. But anyway. I feel like Weezer came about and they had a fairly pleasant sound and they were making kind of fun, sort of goofy rock music. I think we subsequently, when you listen to the Blue Album, there is a lot of pain there. Yeah. But when you see the Buddy Holly video or the Sweater Song, it just seemed perfect. It seemed like a nice, almost cheery thing after we all... Those of us who followed underground music, like we, and you know, they were on the same label as Nirvana as well. Like, this is something I feel like there's a relationship there. Their impact initially between that and teaming up with Spike Jones to make those videos you mentioned, they they just struck at the very right time, you know? Right. And having Rico Kasich produce those, that, that record. Absolutely. 
And then Pinkerton was dark. I mean, Pinkerton seemed to reflect... Like, they made that... Rec- I'm sure they made the Blue Album before things got dark. I feel like Pinkerton reflects the darkness that we were man, all Pinkerton's kind of experiencing. pretty messed up, too, man. I love Pinkerton, yeah. but it's funny, like... And I've always said those first two albums, but, like, I like Pinkerton still. And it's one of those things where it's, like, you can like a thing and still have issues with the thing you like. Yeah. But, like, my God, like... God damn you, half Japanese girl. What? <laughs> that was an opening line of their single on the second record? Like, it's, that's, it's, that's, what an awful thing to it's, say. It's also girls, by the way. It's not even a girl. It's God damn oh. you, half Japanese girls. You do it to me every time. It's all. Oh, the- that's so disgusting. Yeah. It's I, sexist. I, it's racist. It's like, it's racist. It's like if yeah. you go up to a you know a, a woman who is uh, you know mixed and has a Japanese heritage and say, "Man, you half Japanese girls," you think she'll be like, "Aw, that's disgusting! What a disgusting thing to say!" Or how about across the sea? Yeah, that, yeah. That the beginning, the way he sings, "You are eighteen year old girl who live in small city in Japan." Yeah. What? Where are the? Where's the definite and indefinite indefinite articles in that? <laughs> He's, I don't know if he's, yeah, he's obviously mocking or mimicking her uh, supposed voice. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot, lots of problematic great. aspects with Weezer. I think yes. that's what we've struck upon, and I think that they were masked until, maybe this says something about us, we tolerated it because the music was so good. Yes, and also I wasn't as critical as a human because I was a young person, which I think also leads to Twitter trolls to some degree and all the hate on Twitter because so many of the kids, are you're like 14 to 18 or 20-something and you haven't thought about the world nor do you want to, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you have a way to express like, I don't want to (laughs) think, you're too sensitive, (laughs) everything's about race. It's like, wait, what? Politically correct, (laughs) politically correct. What do you mean politically correct? That's that, that's like calling me a doo-doo head. Like, you need to explain why you don't agree with the thing. You take a lot of flack online, eh? Oh, man, I take a lot of flack everywhere. I mean, but certainly online is the easiest way for cowards to talk. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was something that you were experiencing so much. I didn't... I, well, I mean, come on, bitch. I'm like a brown dude who talks about... I refer to, like, white demons as white demons. That's not <laughs> like... A, that's not a thing that you can just say without some flack. I'm sometimes surprised I get to say the things I say, and I'm proud and, and feel lucky that people actually like what I say, and and that that uh, there are people who find what I say, uh, you know, marketable. Ultimately, that's what it's what it's about. If I didn't make somebody money, this wouldn't work, right? Yeah, no, for sure. You do have this. In, you have an interesting background. As far as I understand things, you have a BA in comparative politics and a master's in human rights from the London School of Economics, right? Yeah. And you were an immigrant rights organizer at one point. Yes. So I'm curious about what drew you on those paths, and then subsequently what uh, what drew you to comedy. I mean, that's well, a, that's an interesting. They're kind. I would say that's a divergence on some level. Well, I always did comedy. You know, that was always the thing I loved. If anything, comedy comes before the organizing by far. I, I started doing comedy when I was 17, 18 years old. You oh, know. Okay. So I mean, it was always a thing I did. Um, you know, people always say that. You know. But it's like, you know, I know people who make music <laughs> who are also organizers and they have their acoustic guitars and they play. Yeah. No, or I, they write poetry, you know, and comedy is another art form. And certainly like to me, uh, you know, I did it before I was politicized and I did it before I had strong points of view on the world, really. You know, I was a young person and, you know, I was in college doing it. And like I was saying earlier, a lot of my early stuff was like, my parents and my limited life experience and doing accents and it was stuff you know i think all young comics try to do whatever they can to make 
people laugh, you know, and sometimes it's the lowest common denominator. And my lowest common denominator was that. And, you know, and a lot of other things I'm not proud of that I said when I was that young and just trying to make people laugh or shock people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I figured out what, you know, who I was just like a lot of people do. And that person is somebody who, and I've always been sensitive, but somebody who just could not stand injustice and 9-11, you know, being a New Yorker, being an American, being a Brown person shook me and made me question a lot of things, not just 9-11, but what immediately happened after post 9-11, whether it was war, whether it was detentions and deportations, whether it was hate crimes towards Sikhs and Muslims, anyone who was brown, like those things shocked my sensibilities. And all of a sudden my stage act didn't, uh, you know, didn't reflect who I was as a human. My stand-up act didn't reflect who I was as a human. And so, you know, I started writing different things. I saw Paul Mooney perform you know, a, a very harsh performer when it comes to race, but a very honest and truthful stand-up comedian, somebody who I admire greatly. And, you know, I became a different performer. And and so, you know, I, did, I didn't think I could make a career out of it doing this kind of style and, and being a brown person. So, you know, I moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. That was my passion. I did comedy at night as part of a, a young scene, and it took off. But it, you know, certainly... It wasn't like I chose one path over another. It was two paths that kind of converged. And at some at some point, I had to make a choice about do I continue on the path of immigrant rights organizing? You know, uh, I'd gotten onto TV. I'd gotten a manager. I was on the HBO Comedy Festival, which was a big deal at the time. And yeah, I, I decided to, you know, which was you know, the American version of Just for Laughs uh, before, <laughs> it went, before it went defunct. Just for Laughs. Just for Laughs isn't even Just for Laughs anymore, to be honest. Just for Laughs at the time was the biggest comedy thing a young comedian could get on. Right. And you know, that's where you got discovered. And certainly the internet has changed some of that. It's still a big festival, but it doesn't have the same weight that it, it did back in the day. But, but you know, I got into this festival and had a career that I didn't expect. And even then I went to get a master's in human rights. Um, both things were always kind of – they were passions – I did things that were were I talked about things I cared about and I did work that reflected my values. Right. So in that sense it was still it wasn't organizing both things were I mean, one thing was organizing one thing was was more cathartic and it was more you know it was more about you know like I'm making people laugh and I enjoy making people laugh and if I wasn't making people laugh I wasn't doing it right. Um but certainly like they intertwined in that way. They both reflected who I was right. and who I am. Yeah. And so, and and I can I, I see how the uh, activist side of you and your education would inform your comedy. Did your comedy inform your work uh, as an immigrant rights uh, organizer or anything else? Uh, less so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's certainly um, maybe in the office. Sometimes I, I would lighten the mood. That yeah. was useful when you're doing such heavy work. You have to laugh when yeah. you want to cry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think I also reflect a lot of the folks that really love my stuff that come to the shows. They're really sensitive people who might not have discovered comedy stand up as a form without my work and who love what I do. And I'm very appreciative of them. You know, a lot of the folks who come to my shows are organizers or, or are, ve- are very active politically or very much care about what, you know, about the things I'm talking about. So, you know, in that way, maybe I was supporting the work by existing and giving people a way to like take a break from the from the work they were doing. Yeah. Maybe that's one way, but certainly on a day-to-day level when I was working it, nah, less so. Now, you mentioned earlier that you feel like you're 
work is your comedy rather is changing it's evolving you're getting into topics that you maybe haven't covered before i i wanted to ask as we wrap up here you know what's next do you have a sense yet of of your next sort of act so to speak uh, your next record potentially i mean it not really i mean it evolves you know like and it's constantly evolving so i don't know what pieces are the ones i find to be the most interesting or the strongest i mean certainly i'm talking about my relationship a bit more and you know, about my girlfriend and about my parents. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, after that interview with Terry Gross that everyone seems to reference as opposed to doing the goddamn research. <laughs> like, uh, definitely, like, opening up to her about some of my parents' stories, it, it kind of felt empowering. And it's just like, you know, I should be talking about my parents and their struggle and their stories because they have interesting stories that have nothing to do with their accents. Yeah, 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 totally. It might have to do with the frustration of people judging them based on it. But, like, certainly there's all sorts of interesting stories that that show up. that's a cuckoo clock if you can hear it in the background i'm not sure if you can i thought it was an actual bird it's a <laughs> my parents have a bird in a clock an actual <laughs> bird, and, they, and they replace it every so often interesting um, but uh now there's a song can you hear the song oh lord these why, trinkets why does they, your parents cuckoo clock sing across the sea by weezer that's weird oh god that would be <laughs> that's um, but yeah i mean like I want to talk about my folks a bit more on on stage in terms of what an interesting thing to you know leave everything behind to come here. It's strange, isn't it? Like I, I, my, my, you know, it's a it's it's weird what a how a cliche can be disparaged because I think there's truth to most cliches, and it's true. My dad came here with nothing. Yes, nothing. He came and scouted this country out because he'd heard from his friends that things were happening, and literally nothing. He got jobs as soon as he could, and here we are. He raised the whole family, and I yeah. ma- I make fun of him because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right, right, right. Exactly. I think the same thing. Like, like my parents have worked this hard so I could be an asshole. Yeah, yeah. How terrible is that? Like, I can say stuff like, uh, "How do you not know who Marina Abramovich is?" <laughs> it's like, well, you know what? They paid for me to know who Marina Abramovich is. <laughs> so, and to be around people who care what Marina Abramovich does. They don't need to know who Marina Abramovich is. It, it is interesting as you reach a certain age and as you get into your own work, whatever your work is, I think you do grow to appreciate your parents. I mean, you're in a situation, I am to a lesser extent, where you end up talking a lot about yourself and your life. And when you're doing that, yeah. you, you can't help but reflect upon how you got to where you're at. You're at and that's inevitably going to be with your parents, from your right, parents. And then your parents call you selfish because even when you tell their stories, it's about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta maybe check that uh, okay. for sure. All right, well, you've got the show in uh, Vancouver coming up. Is there you, are you doing more touring? Are you coming to this side of Canada at any point? Wait, where are you right now? Oh, sorry, I'm in Ontario. Oh man, I should do something. It's funny. I always, you always think Canada's so far away, and I'm not that far from Montreal or Toronto. I should do something. I did something in, Cal- in Calgary earlier this year that was fun at the Sled Island Fest, and that festival is do- amazing. That's a great festival. It's really fun, yeah. really fun festival. I had a great, I had a great couple of shows, um, and and also just there was so much like music, and it was so accessible and easy to get around. Like, yeah, it was really fun. Um, you know, this Vancouver show I'm excited about, I felt guilty that I'd done, because I, I do shows in Seattle all the time, mm-hmm. and in Portland, I'm in the Northwest constantly, and I never go to Vancouver, and I missed it on two previous runs to the Northwest, and it felt like uh, it was time. It, wait, is it the Northwest in Canada? Yeah. Or is it or is it the Southwest? No, 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 it's, it's considered the, well, it's considered West, I don't think we'd call Vancouver Northwest. 
okay. North, Northwest, we have a territory called the Northwest Territories for crying out loud. What's in the Northwest Territories? Like uh, Yellowknife. Okay, because I've had friends in Vancouver that said, like, how come you come to the Pacific Northwest and you never come up here? And it's like, that seems really, really self-deprecatory. Not self-deprecatory, it's a little self-hating that you would call it the Pacific Northwest when it, it's not the Northwest. It's weird that they would describe a place south of them as the Northwest. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just very, it's sad. People in Vancouver are a little weird. I'm excited about Vancouver, though. <laughs> I've, done, I've done shows there uh, in, in a comedy club, and it was fun. But, I, you know, it'd be nice to do it at a theater. And I heard the Biltmore is a great theater. And, um, you know, I just... Uh, I just feel like people have been really loving this year in particular. They've really loved the album. I've had so much love from around the country. Vancouver certainly has given me a lot of sweet notes and emails and oh, nice. tweets, and I'm appreciative of that, and I feel like it's, it's, I'm overdue. And certainly I'm overdue for a, a t- Toronto solo show and something in Montreal. I opened for Aziz in Montreal uh, in, over the summer, oh, cool. and that's really fun. But it's, it's different, you know, just because he's like, he, I mean, I, I'm not going to draw as many people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to draw thousands. But well, open, opening is hard no matter comedian, musician, uh, magi- oh. magician. I assume opening is always difficult. Yeah, they were very good to me. And I think that's because Aziz has good fans. Like, the, the, there's a, he has a really good audience. And, and so, like, it's not like a, a douchebag audience. Like, they're really good support. They're, ex- they're waiting for him and they're excited to see him. Yeah. But treat, they treat the openers well. And I, I really appreciated that. It was fun. It was really fun to perform for that many people. Well, I hope we do get you here in Ontario sometime soon. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, have you seen Todd Berry's Crowdwork tour documentary? Yeah, yeah, I got to open for one of his uh, Crowdwork shows in New York after it came out. Oh, so nice. I got to see it live and a little bit of it on the DVD. And uh, man, he's... Um, He's so good. Yeah, he's he's, he's a ge- Todd's a genius, and that Crowdwork tour uh, film is fantastic. I only bring it up because I believe uh, part of the Vancouver show that he sh- is featured in the film is actually at the Biltmore. Oh, that's cool. I should talk to him about it. He's he's a perfectionist also when it comes to venues and picking the right spaces and getting it right. Like, yeah, he's very like he's very deliberate. He like knows what he likes. Like, I'm a big. I'm just, I just I think Todd's incredible, and he's a real. I know co- the term comics comic gets used a lot, but he is. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a self like not self deprecating in a uh, insulting way of only comics like him. I mean that in a like he really knows how to do stand up. He knows the tools. The fact he would even try to do a crowd work tour is an indication of someone who's done this a very long time, has road tested, and trusts himself. Yeah, for sure. No, I agree. He's, he's incredible. Some of the stuff he pulled off, like it makes me embarrassed that I write things. You know what Todd should do? He should host Q. Oh man, that's that's Todd on Q. Finally, <laughs> A respectable campaign we can actually get behind. <laughs> Again, the new Hari uh, Kondabolu album is waiting for 2042, which is out uh, on vinyl December 2nd via Kill Rockstar. It's going to be on vinyl, Hari. That's great. I know. I'm pandering. I'm pandering to the cool kids my whole life. I told myself I wouldn't, but I'm pandering to the cool kids now. You know, when you listen to Weezer, did you ever have that thing? I, I have this all the time. Did you ever have that thing where you realized that you were mostly into music made by and possibly for white people? Oh, yeah, of course. But that's everything. That's not just music. You're right. You're right. Goes You're back- talk- that's everything in the world, man. I, I, I was talking about that with a friend the other day. Like, whenever I, I, I get angry when they won't cast people of color because it's the idea that white people won't be able to watch it or relate to it if it's people of color or minorities cast as leads. Yeah. I mean, and it's so racist and messed up because all we had growing up was watching white people fall in love 
white people have adventures and even though their lives were different, have to relate to them and understand them. Like we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't, we weren't Christian. We weren't, didn't have this experience. We didn't have that experience. <laughs> you know, our parents were immigrants. We have to deal with racism on a, on a day-to-day kind of level. And yet we ignore all those things in our reality and find the humanity in white characters and in white songs and in white songs. We have to find the humanity in their stories because there is a humanity that relates to all of us. I didn't even and- appreciate Indian cooking until I went to university. And, and people, white people were like, man, that must have been great growing up. Your mom making Indian food? And I'd be like, no, it was terrible. I wanted to go out all yeah, the time. No, so I didn't eat Indian. My mom used to make another meal for me and my brother. Right. And then my brother eventually was like, what are we doing? This food's delicious. And still, I'm the one who has the pasta. Like, Oh, do you still not like Indian food? I do, but it's strange. Like this weird stigmatization of like, like home-cooked meals, like being like, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I think it's from my childhood of just, you know, I'm better about it, but being brainwashed into like, oh, you eat that? Ew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like, I bet you all those kids that say, ew, like love it. Yeah. Every Indian restaurant's a four star on Yelp. <laughs> There's no ew. There's no ew on on Yelp. They would have clicked the ew button every single time when they were a kid. Indian, but now they're all about it. I know. It's weird. It's just funny. It's just time. It's just What's that smell was the most terrifying question in the world and now it ends with it's wonderful. Well, I used to play oh my God, I, used to, I used to play road hockey right after dinner and I was always amazed how open I was. Um and I, I <laughs> <laughs> I figured out that it might be the smell. Oh, God, but it smells so good, though. I know, it's great. It's great. <laughs> and it took so long to appreciate it. Yeah. Now I'm great in restaurants, but at home I'm still weird. My mom, though, like, she's had to cook, like, um, Indian, like, not, like, Amer- like, I guess American meals for a lack of non-Indian cuisine. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. long that she actually gets kind of excited about trying new recipes and dishes when I'm home. Because huh. she knows I'll be excited about it and I'll try something different. And well, my dad only wants the same Indian dishes, so she's actually excited about like, ah, you know. Well, my my white, my white wife and I have been married like seven years now, and my parents are finally just recognizing that she's okay with Indian food. Like they just, Oh, God, really? Yeah, it's a drag. <laughs> it's a real drag because she's like, yeah, I eat Indian food all the time. There's Indian restaurants everywhere. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, my parents are, ugh, it's fine. We love our parents. They brought us here. They brought us to this point where you and I could feel comfortable and had the time to talk to one another. So thank you. Let's thank our parents, I think, before we wrap this up. Again, Waiting for 2042 is out on vinyl December 2nd via Kill Rockstars. And on Friday, December 5th, Hari headlines a show at the Biltmore Cabaret in Vancouver. You can learn more about this at killrockstars.com or harikondabaloo.com, and that's spelled just how it sounds. Right, uh, or, you can, or you can type in hari and how you think kondabaloo is spelled, and uh, Google will tell you where my website is. Exactly. That's my a- website is basically Google at this point. <laughs> All right, go to google.com for more information <laughs> about Hari Kondabalu. Now, uh, Hari, is there a, a track from the uh, record that we can go out on? Oh, huh. Like, let's see. Now, normally, that's what I like. It's a music show, so normally, would it be, I put, would it be the Canada thing? Should we do the Moving to Canada one? We could do that one, sure. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so this is Moving to Canada from Waiting for Twenty Forty Two. Uh, Hari, it was a great pleasure to get to speak with you, and uh, and thank you for your time, and best of luck with everything. Man, yeah, let's be friends, man. Let's let's hang out when I'm in Toronto. Absolutely, and once again, Vishon Q. Yes, hashtag Vishon Q. <laughs>
Regardless of who wins the next election, right? I just don't want to hear my liberal friends tell me that they're moving to Canada, right? Because I've heard this for years. If Bush wins, I'm moving to Canada. If we go to war in Iraq, I'm moving to Canada. Man, if Bush wins again, I'm moving to Canada. You're not moving to Canada. Nobody's moving to Canada. Because I don't know if you all know this, Canada does not have a special visa for American liberal cowards, right? That's not how the immigration system works. What, you think you're getting in on refugee status? That's not how the refugee system works. You have to prove that you've been persecuted and that your government wasn't there to protect you. As an American liberal coward, how are you gonna prove that to a judge? Man, you don't know what we've been through, man. It's practically Somalia down there. I mean, I mean, Rush Limbaugh's an idiot and they put high fructose corn syrup in everything. And, oh my God, nobody composts. I mean, they're killing us. Slowly, but they're killing us. Also, I don't know if you all know this, but Canada is not even that fucking great. It's not even that fucking great. They kill a bunch of indigenous people to steal that land, too. Also, the Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, is a dick. He's rolling back all their social welfare programs, all the things that apparently made Canada amazing. Also, a couple of years ago, he made a comment where he said the biggest threat to Canada is Islamist terrorism. First of all, Canada, we've been unfairly blaming Muslims for our problems for 12 years. Way to finally catch up, right? (laughs) Secondly... Terrorists don't give a fuck about Canada. What are you talking about? No, no terrorist was like, all right, we'll get New York, then Ottawa. No. Calm down, Robin. This is about Batman. And the only reason, the only reason why people think Canada is so fucking great to begin with is because the U.S. happens to be the biggest asshole in the world, so in comparison, Canada looks good. It's like being in high school, right? And there's a dude that's punching you in your face every single day against your locker, right? Then his friend shows up and starts laughing. And as the two of them walk away, the dude that was laughing turns around and says, dude, I'm so sorry. That's Canada. That's Canada. (laughs) But they have healthcare, that's that's pretty good. (laughs) They do have healthcare. If you enjoy the Creative Control podcast and want to support it with a monthly pledge, please visit patreon.com slash creative control. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash creative control with two Ks. You can pledge $1 a month or $4, $8, $30, $50, $100 a month, whatever you want. There are gifts and incentives to pledge. But more than anything, you can keep the show going. There's no other revenue stream for this podcast. I've been doing it for my own fulfillment and to contribute something to the culture. But I think it's time to see if I can generate some kind of salary from all of this work. So, if you appreciate Creative Control, again, please consider pledging a monthly amount. All of the info you need is at patreon.com slash creative control. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. 
A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.